Hello and welcome to the Truly Twisted Minds podcast. My name is Amber. And I'm Trish. We want to thank you for your support of our podcast. We seem to be reaching new listeners and we are so stoked about that. Thank you so we much. We'd like to welcome you if you're new to the podcast and welcome you back if you are continued supporters of our little podcast. We greatly appreciate each and every one of you. If you enjoy our podcast, please, please share with your true crime loving friends or anything spooky friends. And be sure if you're on social media to give us a follow at Twisted Minds Pod, all lowercase, all one word, on Twitter, Instagram, or TikTok. Woohoo. And we would like to take this time to dedicate this episode to the memories of the Moore family and Lena and Ina Stillinger, as we are going to be uh, covering the Velisca Axe murders today. And with that being said, we'll dive right into it. So this, as you are well aware is a crime that was committed in Villisca, Iowa. Our home in, state. Yes, our home state. <laughs> in the early 1900s. And around that time, Villisca was about 2,500 residents strong, and it seemed to be flourishing. There were many businesses in the downtown area. Um, several trains came through town each day and dropped off passengers and whatnot. Also, in about 1912, Villisca became the home of the only publicly funded armory in the state of Iowa. Really? Wow. Yeah. So they had a soldier company that was housed there, and they ended up participating in four wars, World War I and World War II, the Korean War, and the Vietnam War. Oh, wow. So, yeah, they were pretty busy. So... I would imagine there was a lot more people that came through because of the soldiers being around and mm -hmm. anybody who traveled from town to town on trains, just whether they were, you know, visitors to the city or just homeless people that were moving from town to town to get work. So it was a hop in place, I guess. Very cool. So you get to 1912, ironically enough. And we are going to be discussing the Moore family right now. Josiah B. Moore, he was 43. He was obviously the patriarch of the Moore family. And he was a very prominent businessman. He opened his own store, Moore Implement Company, in 1908. And it was said he was really well liked around town. And his company had a very profitable John Deere dealership. And that's tractors for those of you who don't know what John Deere is. Yeah, tractors and things of the like. Yep. And he married his wife, Sarah, in 1899, and they had four children together. So Sarah Moore was 39, and she was obviously Josiah's wife and mother to their four children. She was said to be very active in her community, and especially so in the Presbyterian church that was in town. She often helped organize different events held at the church, including their uh, annual Children's Day service. Mm 
So their oldest child was Herman Montgomery Moore. His He was 11. And he was pretty much attached to his daddy's hip from what I could understand. From what I understand. Oh, kind of like a daddy's boy. Yeah, he Aww. was essentially he was seen as like the quintessential father's son. Okay. And he's he was often seen with his dad. Aw. The second oldest is Mary Catherine. She was 10. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really find much personal information in regards to her, but I do know that she was friends with the Stillinger girls, Lena and Ina, who were 12 and 8. And she was the one who invited her friends over to stay the night on the night of this horrible crime. Right. Because the girls didn't want to walk home or walk to their grandmas in the dark. Right. And they had two younger boys, Arthur Boyd, who was seven, and Paul Vernon, who was five. And there really was little to no information in regard to them. Well, basically because of the time and... I was going to say, that's kind of weird. Like, there wouldn't be any information about them at all. From what from my research, I it was said that there was only even one picture of either one of them, you know? Wow. That was, like, available, and they were incredibly blurry. You couldn't even make them out. Wow. Yeah. Well, then again, photography back then wasn't, you know... What it is today. Stellar, so... <laughs> So, the night before the family was murdered, Josiah, Sarah, and the four kids were at the Children's Day service at the Presbyterian Church. The children all participated in little skits and speeches and whatnot to entertain the people at the service. Mm -hmm. And like I had previously said, um, Mary Catherine had asked her her parents if the Stillinger girls could stay over. And... Apparently, uh, Josiah called the family home, the Stillinger family home, but he didn't reach the parents. Instead, he um, got a hold of an older sibling. Right. And the sibling answered and stated that she felt it would be okay for the girls to stay the night and that she would pass the message to her parents. Pretty uh, lenient in those days, I suppose. Right. But, I mean, it's a small town. You pretty and, much I mean, know sure everybody. And I'm sure they knew them yeah. very well, so. Right. It's not like it's some stranger. Hey, can these two strange little girls come and stay at our house? Well, yeah. Anyway, after the Children's Day service, um, the Moore family and the Stillinger girls all walked the three blocks to the Moore family home. Once they got there, um, they had a snack, milk and cookies, I'm told, is what it was. Mm -hmm. And then they retired to the three bedrooms in the home for the night. Yep. And then the next morning, uh, their next door neighbor, Mary Peckham, was in her yard hanging laundry at 5 a.m. Who does laundry at 5 a.m.? But okay, whatever. Small town, early 1900s. You yeah. guys say more. They're, used, they're, used, they're like a farm community. They're used to starting their day early. Very true. Uh, when she noticed um, that there was no noise or movement coming from her next door neighbors, you know, the Moore house. Uh, So she went and she let out their chickens and she got concerned and she went and she knocked on the door. When nobody answered, she contacted uh, Josiah's brother, Ross Moore, who came over and knocked on the door and shouted their names, tried looking in the windows, but they were like all covered. 
And then he had found a spare key and went into the house. Wasn't it quite a search for the spare key? They had to look for a bit? Yeah. I believe so. And um, he had gone into the house and he went as far as like the parlor and then um, had looked into the bedroom, which was like off of the parlor. Which was the only downstairs bedroom. Yes. Which was actually rather odd for that time for them to have a bedroom um, on the first floor. Right. I read that somewhere, heard that somewhere. And um, he had seen two figures in the bed that were obviously deceased. It was kind of like carnage. And he came back out and he told Mary to call the sheriff as there were dead bodies in the house. And the city uh, marshal Hank Horton arrived shortly after, as well as uh, Sheriff Orrin Jackson. And, of course, news spread quickly throughout the town, and soon people uh, came to gawk and see the carnage for themselves. You know, they say that, you know, these days it's so much easier for um, rumors to spread and whatnot. I don't know. They had quite the little system in 1912 if they had all these townspeople show up. Right. And it was thought that due to law enforcement lack of crowd control, some 100 people had trampled inside the murder scene. So people are just coming in and out of the house. Like it's some sort of like attraction. Right. Contaminating it, ruining potential evidence. And it was even believed that an onlooker took a piece of Josiah Moore's skull as a souvenir. Who the heck does that? Oh, don't mince your words. Who the hell does that? Oh my gosh. I mean, what kind of crazy creep are you that you take a piece of a dead body? Right? And ugh, that just gives me the heebie-jeebies that someone would do that. I mean, and as someone you don't even really like know, no, you know, you might know him via, you know, business in town or whatever but right they, all it's like all of the people that show oh, were hey, showing up I, can't possibly have been intimately close with the family right it's like i have a piece of his skull look at me woohoo Ugh, gross what the hell and it wasn't even until around noon that the Velisca national guard had come in to cordon off the crime scene and attend to the crowd that's a long time right because you think about it and so about what time did she call the brother like 8 a.m ish something like that yeah because she called at the store i believe because um oh god what's his name um um i have it here hold on um one of the guys that works at uh josiah's store and i had this name like all over ed silly um, he had come to open the store and then, um, kind of timeline wise, uh, the neighbor had called over to the store to say that none of the animals had been out, but she had let the chickens out. So he came and he like let out the livestock right? and then ended up going back to the store. But then she ended up calling him again at the store saying, you know, get over here. <laughs> Well, wait a minute. I thought she called the brother. Or yeah, she did call the brother. I'm sorry. Why would you, I was going to say, I don't Duh. think she called Ed Sully to... Yeah. Yeah, no. My bad. Anyway, she called Ross Moore. <laughs> yes. And he came and blah, blah, blah. We're back to the National Guard not showing up till noon. 
Yeah. Which, you know, that's a pretty big time span, four hours. I know. And then um, as far as, like, the crime scenes go, um, all of the doors were locked. The killer had taken the key when he left. Um, the window shades were either drawn or if the window had no shade, there were clothing. There was clothing placed over it. And clothing also covered all of the mirrors as well. Somebody didn't like to look at themselves. Right. And then doctors estimated the time of death to be um, between midnight and 5 a.m. And all of the victims' faces were covered with their bedclothes after they were killed. And their faces were so badly mutilated that it was, like, impossible to identify them. It like, was just a good thing that people knew who lived there. Right. And, and that the Stillinger girls had stayed over. Right. They had all been bludgeoned to death. And then a kerosene lamp had been found in Josiah and Sarah's room with the wick bent back so that the flame would be really low. And the and the chimney was off of it too, right? Yep. The chimney was found under the dresser. And then another lantern was found in the girls' um, room, the Stillinger girls. Downstairs, yep. Yes. And the axe that had killed everyone had been partially cleaned was also in the Stillinger girls' room. And wasn't the axe found on the property? It was. It was actually, it belonged to Josiah. And um, there had been gouge marks on the ceiling of both the parents' and the children's rooms created by the upswing of the axe. Wow. And strangely, this is like the weirdest thing ever. Uh, there was a two-pound slab of bacon wrapped in what was thought to be a dish towel, not only in the kitchen, but in the Stillinger girls' rooms as well. Wasn't it, like, wrapped up and sitting by the axe? Yeah. It's, like... Bacon? Okay, bacon. And uh, then... In, not even sliced bacon. A slab a of slab bacon. A slab of bacon. It's, like... <laughs> okay. That, that is, like, the most random thing ever, and I don't mean to laugh, but... That's it's just, random. It's, it's so random. And there was um, a plate of untouched food in the kitchen like they decided to make themselves a snack and then fought against it i guess so and then it was next to a bowl of bloody water so i'm assuming they tried to wash their hands or something or maybe that was the water they used to try to wash off the um axe the axe maybe yeah very true something like that so um the county coroner dr Lindquist, he didn't arrive until about 9 a.m i was like okay dude what the heck are you doing <laughs> But well, that's better than I, noon. I digress. Yeah. He and the county attorney, uh, Radcliffe, gave the undertaker uh, permission to take the bodies. And it wasn't until about 2 a.m. that the last of the bodies were carried out. Wow. Yeah. That's a long day. That's a very long day. And then they were taken to the uh, nearby fire station, which had been turned into a temporary morgue. Well, I can imagine in a small town, you wouldn't have a huge mortuary. Especially for, you know, what? Eight people? Yeah. I was going to say six. It's like, that is not my forte. <laughs> <laughs> and so the uh, coroner's inquest was held on June 11th, and there were 14 witnesses called to testify. Really? Yes. So the first was Mary Peckham, as she was the first to notice uh, no movement in the house. Um, the second was Ed Selly. He had gone to open the store for Josiah since he wasn't able to reach 
um, him at home. He had called Josiah's parents to see if um, he was there maybe visiting his folks, but he wasn't. Yep. Mary Peckham then called the store to let Ed know that the livestock needed to be let out. And he went and fed the horses and then went back to the store. He received another call from Mary saying that he needed to contact the marshal quickly. And then according to Sally's ter- testimony, excuse me, um, Ross and Peckham had entered the house before he returned with the marshal. And then when they arrived, they all re-entered together. And well, then- yeah, I that makes sense because they saw the bodies then they made a call to get the sheriff right there, so. right and then after seeing blood on the bed in the downstairs bedroom he left the house while waiting outside the home Sully was met by uh harry moore um brother another brother i believe yep josiah's brother yes and according to Sully, when marshall horton um came out of the house his comment was there's somebody dead or they have been killed in every bed yeah it's like Oof. That had to have been a shocking crime for a small town in that time. Right? I well, mean, and after that happened, there was, like, a huge sale of, like, you know, guns and... Dogs. Dogs and everything. And and wasn't there... It wasn't even said that some people didn't even sleep at night because they were so scared. Right? It's like, um, okay, that's not gonna do you any good if you're, like, sleepy, but... <sighs> I mean, fear does that to people. Yeah, fear is a strange motivator. Right? And then, um, at that time, the house was locked. Like I said, and the key the killer had taken with them. And so the marshal left to call for the coroner, and the sheriff and Sally returned to the store to call uh, the John Deere people in Omaha to alert them of the news. And then, Really? Yep. Sally then returned to the house um, with his father after making a call to Omaha, but did not re-enter the home. And then when uh, questioned at the inquest about possible enemies of Joe Moore, Josiah, uh, Sally admitted that Joe had mentioned a brother-in-law that could have been a threat. Quote, he, Joe, says, I got a brother-in-law that don't like me, said he would get even with me sometime, end quote. The brother-in-law that Moore was referring to was Sam Moyer. Mm-hmm. And Sully uh, denied having any other information regarding anyone uh, that would have wanted to murder the Moore family. And uh, he was excused. And it's very specific, though, that he would say, I want to get even with Josiah. Right. But then kill every single person in the home. I know, right? There would have to be a bigger motive at play, you would think. You would think, but, you know, who knows? Stranger things have happened. Exactly. So our third witness is uh, J. Clark Cooper. He was the first physician on scene. And when he examined the bodies, he moved one of the kerosene lanterns out of the way. It's like... I'm sorry, as, like, a person who watches, like, forensic files and stuff, it's like, <laughs> Well, you would think that the... Okay. That a physician would... No, 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 no. What I was getting at was, usually once the coroner is, you know, allowed to examine the bodies or whatnot, mm-hmm. then the police should have been already through and processed everything, so... Right. I mean, that shouldn't have been a big deal, but as we know, that 
crime scene was not handled well. No. At all. No. And so, according to Cooper, uh, the group had stepped into the dining room and into the first floor bedroom. And all you could see was the arm of someone sticking out from under the edge of the covers with the blood on the pillow. And I went over and lifted the covers and saw what I supposed was a body. Some entire stranger and a mere child at the back of the bed. I did not recognize them at all. Neither did any of the people and the others that were with me. And we merely saw that they were dead and that there were only two in the bed. Then we stepped out into the parlor. End quote. <laughs> and uh, when questioned about the conditions of the body, Cooper admitted that he did not touch the corpses. The bedding was pretty stiff at the head and the blood and the brains on the pillow were had contracted as it does when killed will dry so that it was perfect jelly at that time and blood clots were dry. Blech. Sorry, mom. <laughs> he estimated that the Moors in Stillingers had been dead for at least five to six hours. Right, right. Like, so if you consider that, and he got there when? About nine o'clock? Yeah, that's right. So... If you take six away from that, so approximately around 3 a.m.-ish, they were Some, armed. Yeah, somewhere in there. Well, because they said between, what was it? They midnight? said midnight and five, but that kind of gives it a more concrete area, right. like ballpark area of around three, 2 to 3 a.m., I would say. Yeah, yeah. And then we have uh, the fourth witness. Um, Jesse Moore was the wife of Ross Moore who took the phone call from Ms. Peckham. And Ms. Peckham asked if uh, Mr. Moore's father had been ill as she hadn't, she wasn't able to get anyone at Josiah's house. So then she called Josiah's store, spoke with Ed Selly. He said he couldn't reach anyone. She um, later heard about the murders and then went to the house to retrieve family photos for the press. What? Yeah. Oh, uh, that's nice. awesome. Right? And but it's... I'm assuming that was a while later, though, at least. Maybe she wasn't one of the people tra traipsing through. I don't know. Who knows? It's like... Ugh. I guess you can't really assume anything. Because no. this was obviously a weird time. I mean... Very. Who goes through like they're like exploring a zoo or whatever? Ugh. Anyway, I digress. Yeah. So, our fifth witness was Dr. F.S. Williams. He was the second physician that Josiah, um, or not Josiah, that Josiah had run into on the street. No, not Josiah. The, uh, other guy. Yes. Um. The other brother? No. The employee. Um. Ed Sully. Thank you. I cannot believe I put Blanked that. on that? Yep. Sorry about that. So, um, Ed Sully had ran into on the street on the morning of June 10th um, to bring him back to the house. And, yeah, there wasn't much testimony from him, apparently. Guess and not. <laughs> the uh, sixth witness was Edward Landers, who was visit visiting his mother for the summer, who lived a few houses down from the moors. Now, he thought he had heard boys moaning or crowing. At about 11 p.m. on the 9th. But he didn't hear anything more after that. Okay. Yeah. It's well, like, from the sound of it, that wouldn't have been the right time frame anyway, so. Yeah. 
the seventh witness was Ross Moore, Josiah's brother and the first person to enter the house after the murders. And um, can, you, can you imagine being the family member that walks in on that? I, I can't even <sighs> begin to guess how terrible that had to be. That's just wow. And he's also the second member of the Moore family to be called to the stand. Um, he testified that at approximately 8.15 Sunday morning, June 10th, Mrs. Peckham, Joe's next-door neighbor, had called him and inquired as to the health of his parents. She went on to say she had already spoken to his wife and had thought it was unusual that the Moore house was so quiet. Ross then walked over to Joe's store and spoke with Ed Selly, who said he um, hadn't... Uh, heard from him yet so of course that was unusual and according to ross he went over to the house and checked the barn to see if uh joe's team was still there he and mrs peckham then tried uh rapping on the windows calling for someone the blinds were down and everything and then he used one of his keys to open the door which is weird because there was you know other testimony that they had, they had to search for the key. Yeah, so I I don't know about that, but this is a, maybe one of his keys. By one of his keys, he means one of Joe Josiah's keys. I don't know. Maybe I don't know. Um, he had gone into the house and saw blood on the sheets. He did not wait long enough to see anything else and returned outside and told Miss Peckham to call the marshal. And then when uh, questioned further, he could shed no light on any possible suspects and then um, was asked to step down. Okay. And the eighth witness, uh, Fenwick Moore, yet another brother, was also called. He lived in Red Oak, which was not too far away. He didn't know anything. Didn't know who wanted his brother dead. Ninth witness was Marshal Hank Horton. Spent little time on the stand. Confirmed that he was approached by Sully between 8.15 and 8.30 a.m. 10th and 11th witnesses, uh, Lee Van Gilder and Larry Moore, neither had any indication of who would want Josiah and his family dead. 12th and 13th um, were Blanche and Joseph Stillinger. The coroner then called Blanche Stillinger to the stand. Blanche was the eldest of the Stillinger children and sister to victims Ina and Lena Stillinger. And according to Blanche, Joe Moore had called the Stillinger home at 6 p.m., on Sunday night and asked to speak to her mother. When she told him that her mother was outside, he went on to tell her that the girls were going to go to church with the family, with his family, and didn't want to walk back to their grandmothers in the dark. Um, he then asked if she thought it would be okay if they stayed with the Moors overnight. Lynch testified that she told Mr. Moore that she thought it would be okay if they stayed. After a few other questions regarding her sister's ages, Blanche was excused and her father, Joseph Stillinger, took her place. After questioning Mr. Stillinger about his hired help and whether or not he knew of anyone who could have committed the crime, the coroner asked if he had called the Moore house on Sunday morning. And he said, quote, my wife did, yes. Uh, he answered, when questioned about the time of the call, Stillinger replied, quote, I remember she phoned about three different times trying to get to the house. I did not ask her about the particular time, but she expected the children back just before school time, end quote. And uh, 14th witness, Charles Moore. After the Stillinger's testimony, Charles Moore was called. Charles was also one of Joe's brothers. Could not identify the acts believed to be the murder weapon. 
as Joe's, but did admit that Joe kept one in the coal shed. Right. And Charles also testified that he believed that it was a habit for Joe to lock up the house um, from the inside when they went to sleep. Quote, I went there several mornings after the team to go in the country. And of course, I always went to the dining room in the front and they would not have had that open and I wouldn't have to wait. And I would have to wait for someone to come and open the door, would lock the rest of the house on the inside and lock the door and keep the key in the inside. End quote. Interesting. Right? And yeah. So those were all of the witnesses that were called? That was all of the witnesses. Okay. So at this point in time, we're going to take a little break. And then we will come back and talk about the suspects in the case. And but, there's a few. <laughs> well, yeah, a handful of suspects. Um, but we will be back soon after a word from our sponsor. And we hope you will continue to be joining us then. Later. Hi, and welcome back to the Truly Twisted Mind podcast. I am Amber. And I'm Trish. And we're going to delve right back into the Velisca Axe murders. And at this point, we're on the list of suspects. And that starts with a guy named Andrew Sawyer. He was someone that came up in the grand jury testimonies often. However, no evidence linked him to the crime. Um, he was a transient who was one of many that was considered doing due to him being quote unquote an unknown in the community that's kind of messed up i think it was said that he got a job with the railroad and that he was really interested in the case quote unquote hmm. because he was afraid he would be suspected as he had been in Velisca the night of the murders and he was strangely jumpy his like boss and coworkers said hmm. he slept with his clothes on and he also slept with an axe i was gonna say was that the dude that slept with the axe i thought mm -hmm. that was weird yeah i mean why sleep with an axe obviously he had some sort of mental issue but Maybe. it was <laughs> it ended up being proven later on that he wasn't even in Velisca at the time so he couldn't have committed the murders oh okay so it just sounds like he was a bit paranoid Cross him out. <laughs> All right. So the next one that came up was Sam Moyer. You you uh, touched on him earlier. He's mm -hmm. uh, He was Josiah's brother-in-law. Right. And apparently he made repeated threats to kill Josiah. Why? I don't know. They didn't say why, but apparently they didn't get along. And his answer was, I'm going to kill him or whatever. Okay. They investigated him, but his alibi cleared his name of the crime so hmm. you can kind of check him off the list cross him off the next guy that comes up is frank jones he uh is a business owner in Velisca and an iowa state senator and josiah moore had worked for frank jones for years before he opened his own business in 1908 okay and according to other uh, Velisca residents, uh, Jones was extremely upset that Josiah had not only left his company, but had taken the John Deere business along with him as it was extremely lucrative. Ooh. 
Motive. Yeah. Motive. Um, <laughs> wee -oo, wee -oo. On top of that, there was another rumor that Josiah had an affair with Jones's daughter-in-law, Donna. What? Which further ticked him off. Oh, boy. So this guy, uh, Detective Wilkerson, um, with the Burns Detective Agency out of Kansas City, uh, that was who he suspected was uh, part of the crime. And okay. he openly not only accused Frank Jones, but his son Albert as well. Really? Of hiring William Mansfield to murder Josiah. Yeah. Huh. However, neither man was arrested and strongly denied any involvement in the murders. I mean, yeah, why would we say, oh, yep, it was me. <laughs> right. Well, and I mean, I hate to say it, but, you know, politician that can, like, power. cover stuff up and... Mm-hmm. The power. Sneaky, sneaky, sneaky. But there is not proof. Yeah. It was all tidy if they had a part in it. Right. But, yeah, that was his strong, this detective's strong uh, suggestion. Hmm. Um, which brings us around to William Mansfield, a.k.a. George Worley or Jack Turnbaugh. Oh, wow. His aliases. He was from Blue Island, Illinois, and I'd say a very viable suspect, and particularly in the eyes of Detective Wilkerson. Um, according to his investigation, Mansfield was a quote-unquote cocaine fiend and serial killer. Oh. Like Detec actual serial killer? Actual like serial killer. Detective wow. Wilkerson posited that Mansfield was hired by Frank Jones to commit the crimes in Villisca. Okay. The detective also alleged that Mansfield was responsible for axe murders that occurred in Paola, Kansas, Aurora, Colorado, as well as the murders of his own wife, infant child, mother-in-law, and father-in-law. Wow. Yeah. Wilkerson said he could prove it due to the similar factors in each crime scene. And he listed off victims killed with an axe, mm -hmm. mirrors covered in the homes, a burning lamp with the chimney left off at the foot of the bed, and a basin with bloody water, which he washed up in, left in the kitchen. Oh, the clincher was that gloves were worn to avoid leaving fingerprints, fingerprints because the detective determined it was because Mansfield knew his fingerprints were on file at Leavenworth Federal Military Prison. Wow. So he know to cover his tracks that way. Right. And but fingerprinting just... was pretty new, but it was still something that he specifically knew about. Right. That's just pretty creepy, though. All of the coincidences. Same... Like the MO, yeah. Yeah, wow. There was also a witness, a man named R.H. Thorpe, that stated he saw Mansfield board a train at Clorinda after walking in from Villisca. Really? Yeah. Despite yeah. all of this investigation, it was discovered that Mansfield had payroll records that placed him in Illinois at the time of the murders. Wow. Detective Wilkerson, however, still had his suspicions that Frank Jones was behind that and he was the reason that the evidence appeared and caused Manfield's release huh that's crazy yeah I mean that's a lot of similarities I know I can't get over like how similar of an MO that is right and that he was obviously never you know charged with anything right 
but he i think he's a strong contender oh absolutely there's just too many similarities there and not enough proof unfortunately which is so infuriating so the next suspect on the list is reverend george kelly i think he did it personally <laughs> now uh It was said the morning following the murders at 5.19 a.m., Reverend Kelly and his wife left Villisca on board the westbound number 5 train and allegedly told fellow travelers there were eight dead souls back in Villisca, Iowa, butchered in their beds while they slept, he said, even though the bodies had not yet been discovered. That's, if that's not like a flashing red, like, hey, I did it. I don't know. Maybe he was clairvoyant. <laughs> I have no idea. Who knows? But he I don't know. He was a know. strange little man. I know I, that much. And we say little because he was 5'2". Yeah. He was tiny. Yeah. So apparently. kind of creepy looking. What? Kind of creepy looking. In, <laughs> yeah, he was kind of creepy in looking. In the pictures that I've seen, it's like, and you know, I don't mean to judge a book by its cover or anything, but just, yeah. He looked like a skeevy little man. Yeah. Well, he was a sexual deviant, too. Right. So so he had apparently arrived in Villisca for the first time the Sunday morning of the murders. Oh, for the children's thing? Yeah. And he attended the Sunday school performance by the Stillinger girls and the other children before departing early Monday. Right. He returned two weeks later and posed as a detective from Scotland Yard of all places. That I don't get. And they believed him. That's the clincher. What? They're just like, okay, come on in. It's like, really? Scotland Yard? Yeah, Scotland Yard. That's that, like in Europe, hell? is it not? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my he, God. Yeah. Anyway, so he joined a tour of the house with another group of investigators. How many investigators did they have touring the place? Jeez. I have no idea, but apparently there were many investigators from all different, like, cities and and if surrounding this was, states like, okay that doesn't make sense if it was two weeks later any evidence would be long gone long trash you gotta remember policing was way different yeah sure i keep forgetting that fact because you know we're dealing with 1912 right and authorities became interested in reverend kelly a few weeks after the murders after being alerted by recipients of his rambling letters apparently he was a little cuckoo bird okay. um like talking about the murders or just yeah wow he had uh, suffered a mental breakdown as an adolescent he immigrated to america with his wife in 1904 ah he was the grandson of English ministers, son and grandson of English ministers. That oh, that would explain okay. the Scotland Yard thing. Okay, okay. Because he was, you know, of English heritage. Gotcha. He had preached at Methodist churches across North Dakota, Minnesota, Kansas, and Iowa. He'd been assigned as a visiting minister to several small communities north of Villisca, where he developed a reputation for odd behavior. He had also been convicted of sending obscene material through the mail and had spent time in a mental hospital. I don't even want to know what constitutes as this obscene material. Right. Lord only knows. Mm -hmm. 
So a grand jury did indict him for Lena Stillinger's murder and only Lena's. That's random. And he was interrogated throughout the summer of 1917 while in jail awaiting trial. On August 31st at 7 a.m., Kelly signed a confession to the murder saying God had whispered to him to, quote, suffer the children to come unto me, unquote. Okay. Unhinged much? Very much so. Wow. But they get to trial and Kelly recants his confession and his case was sent to the jury on September 26th of 1917 Mm -hmm. the first jury there were two juries the first one deadlocked 11 to 1 for acquittal a second jury was immediately impaneled but acquitted reverend kelly in november and that's where his involvement or suspicion of guilt or innocence stood yeah and then didn't he like disappear after that Mm mm-hmm Oh, yeah. All right. So our next suspect is Henry Lee Moore. No relation to the Moores that were um, murdered. He uh, was suspected by a gentleman named M.W. McClary. He was a federal officer assigned to the case. And he announced in May of 2013, excuse me, 2013, (laughs) 1913, (laughs) 100 years later, no big deal, 101, that he had solved not only the Villisca murders, but 22 others that had been committed in the Midwest around the same time frame. Pretty bold statement, right? Wow. McClary's theory was that Henry Moore was the serial killer responsible for all the crimes. Okay. Henry Moore had been... Convicted of the murders of his mother and maternal grandmother in Columbia, Missouri, just months after the murders in Villisca. Uh, His family members were killed just as brutally as the victims in Villisca, and his weapon of choice was, drumroll please, an an axe. So, apparently, he has a really weird track record as well. Apparently in 1900, he was living with a family in Franklin County, Iowa and working as a farmhand. It's suspected that he may have fathered a child with the young daughter of the farmer. Oh, he was sentenced to the Kansas state reformatory in Hutchinson, Kansas on a forgery charge at a later date and released in, on April 11th, 1911. So he was suspected of these murders in Colorado Springs that September. Oh, okay. And I'm not quite sure how they linked him to that other than, you know, the MO of the crime. Right. Testimony during Henry's trial indicated that he had lived with his mother and grandmother during the winter of 1911 and the summer of 1912. He left to take a job on the railroad at that time. Okay. So, during the Velisca investigation, all these other murders came to light. Mm-hmm. And so, McClary received information about Moore's conviction from his father, from Moore's father, who was the warden of the Leavenworth, Kansas Federal Penitentiary. 
Okay. It was his belief that uh, Henry Moore had committed all the murders, including Villisca. No. For whatever reason, McClary's announcement went largely ignored, and Henry Moore, to anyone's knowledge, was not convicted of any other crimes, just the one against his mother and grandmother. But that makes sense because he actually had a reason for that. Right. Because right. he wanted to gain the property they owned. He wanted to. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. He There was a, you know, a motive. Yes. An M.O. But I, I don't know. I don't feel like, I feel like he's a one and done guy. Because yeah. I mean, that doesn't line up with anything else. Mm -mm. I would lean more towards uh mansfield william mansfield yes i i as agree. the serial killer type right however there is a fairly new theory that has come to light okay about a gentleman named paul mueller and this was highlighted in a 2017 book called the man from the train by bill james and rachel mccarthy james so, Paul Mueller was an immigrant, possibly from Germany, who was the subject of an unsuccessful year-long manhunt as the sole suspect in the 1897 murder of a family in West Brookfield, Massachusetts, who had employed him as a farmhand. Let me guess. Same M.O.? Yep. The Jameses uh, believed that Mueller was guilty not only of that murder... Mm -hmm. and the Velisca murders, but as part of a killing spree that lasted over a decade, killing at least 59 people in 14 Whoa. separate incidents, including the Colorado Springs and Paola crimes. Dang. They, uh, the Jameses identified common features to these crimes, many of which were also found at the Velisca scene. Right. The killer selected families who lived near railroad tracks, mm -hmm. hence their book's title. Right. Seemingly struck in ambush at about midnight while the victims were asleep. Wow. Used the blunt side of an axe rather than the blade to strike the victims in the head and face. Wow. Used Ouch. an axe found at the victim's home mm -hmm. and left it in plain sight after the murders. Wow. Covered the victims with blankets to prevent blood splatter. Covered windows from the inside of the house and locked the doors before departure. Left out bacon. I haven't found... I didn't see bacon. Sorry. I'm hung up on the bacon uh, The bacon, thing. yeah. Yeah. And in, their, in Mueller's suspected crimes, there was often, but not always, a sexual motive directed towards a pubescent girl, as with Lena's being partly disrobed. Yeah, because she was actually found with her underwear... Missing. Missing. Yeah. But there was no signs of sexual assault. Just because he didn't, like, touch her in any way doesn't mean he didn't stand there and jerk off or whatever. True. Gross. Blech. Gross, gross. So he is the final gentleman on the suspect list, and I'd say he's a decently viable suspect. Yeah. Because, like, uh, Mansfield, William Mansfield, he has the M.O. thing covered. Mm-hmm. But it just means that it was a worse situation than we thought if he was the serial killer yeah it's like wow so we've got that little handful of suspects uh but even still the only one who ever went to trial was reverend george kelly 
Yeah. And he got acquitted. Which is weird. Now, switching gears just a teeny tiny bit, I kind of want to go into like the supernatural aspect of Velisca. Hold on. I just had one more statement. Oh, sure. As of us recording at this moment, the case has remained unsolved and in my eyes likely won't have an official resolution. No, I don't think it will. I don't think there's any way to prove anything at this point in time. Mm -mm. But like I said, I think if I was making the determination, I'd lean towards uh, Paul Mueller or the Frank Jones, William Mansfield connection. Yeah, I agree. And even if Frank Jones had nothing to do with it, which I don't know, I still would consider Mansfield a strong candidate. I agree. So, yes. All right. Let's flip it on its head and go with the supernatural part. Okay. So... We had actually, Amber and I, had actually um, driven past the Velisca um, Axe Murder House. Yes, we did. Because we had gone down to explore, like, the bridges of Madison County mm-hmm. and all, all of these was little... was at the time of my cousin's wedding. I can't remember. It was the... We explored the bridges at the same time. Okay, cool. I think there was a family reunion or something in the works there too. Yes. Anyway, <laughs> it doesn't matter. Yeah. <coughs> Pardon me. So we decided we were nearby Velisca, so we were like, hey, let's go check out the house. And I remember it was on a Sunday. And I think didn't we stop at a convenience store to like ask where it was? Uh for like directions or something. I wanna say we did. I if we might have, but I think there were signs as well. Yeah. Um, so we um we unfortunately pull- it was not open for tour on Sundays. Nope, it was not. Um, and this was a few years ago. Yeah. Um, so we pull up to the house and it's like it was bigger than I thought it was gonna be because it looks small on TV when you see it. Yeah, but I think all I think I believe it was like a less than a thousand square feet total. Something so, like that. I mean, it was small but not too tiny yeah i don't know but probably decent sized for the time right that you know everything was built yeah and i'm sure you know people have heard that you know there's all sorts of like hauntings and um spirits and stuff spirits of like the dead girls and everything yeah like the house is like haunted by the spirits that are not at rest and Mm -hmm. all that jazz all i know is it felt like there was some malevolent energy and i kid you not so amber didn't want to get out of the car i did not want to get out of the car we pulled up in front and parked and as trish can vouch i'm not scared of much Uh -uh. but i looked at her and i said i'm not getting out of this car and i wanted a closer look so i get out of the car i'm like halfway up the lawn and i stop and I am covered in goosebumps. Something is telling me to turn around and go back to the car. It was like this voice in my head. And I'm not like one of these people that uh, says, oh, I feel spirits all the time, blah, 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 blah. Right. All I know is there is something dark. 
Yeah. And my gut instinct was stay away. Mm -hmm. And I did. I went back to the car. I did not go any closer. And I don't know if I could go back. I really don't. What's funny is previous to this, we had toyed with the idea of getting a group of friends together and And staying staying the night because you you can rent the property for a night for like 400 bucks it's like geez but i don't think either of us would do it now no after that experience mm-mm. and that wasn't even going in the home that was just at the curb yeah for and me and that like was, halfway across the yard for you and that was like the first like ever supernatural experience i have ever had it was just strange and <sighs> creepy and like I said, I'm not scared of much, but it sure as hell stopped me in my tracks. Mm-hmm. And it was like, leave. <laughs> like, okay. Yeah, Don't need so... to tell me twice. <laughs> not long after that, we were out of there. Yes. And we were uh, vroom vrooming back home. Yeah. All right. Well, now that we've had that little digression. Yeah. What is I y'all... just figured it was worth mentioning. It was <laughs> worth mentioning. And I, I had intended to mention it, too. But yeah, so that's our little Velisca story for this week. Yep. What are your thoughts on the crime, on the suspects? Who do you think done it? Who done it? What are your suspicions? After hearing the different uh, suspects and the crimes that they are suspected of committing and and or did commit, mm-hmm. yada da yada da. Let us know. Hit us up on the Twitter or the Instagram at Twisted Minds Pod and leave us a commentary. And we will be happy to hear what you think. All right. Is that pretty much going to conclude us for this week? I think so. And so next time we. Two are... weeks from now, yep. which will be June. 20th we will be covering I'm blanking (laughs) didn't you say DeFeo oh yeah (laughs) my brain is not here Uh, we will be covering William DeFeo there you go (laughs) aka the Amityville murders Amityville Horror. Yeah. Dum dum dum. Yay. Okay, and with that, we are going to end this little jabber fest. My name is Amber. And I am Trish. And we are the Truly Twisted Minds podcast. We hope you enjoyed this one and will continue to listen and share with all your friends. Again, we appreciate so much. Thank you, thank you, thank all you. All of you who listen to our little podcast and spread the word for us. You guys are awesome. Believe in us and give us the time of day, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> it helps us and our podcast immensely because this is something we want to eventually be able to increase yeah. our time doing mm-hmm. and have more episodes. Yeah. That we can record Absolutely. even go from bi-weekly to weekly or twice weekly. I don't know. That would be nice. That would be nice. And if we could just solely focus on this, that would be helpful. Cool. The more people that I listen, like that. <laughs> the more people that listen, the more likely that outcome is. Yes. 
Otherwise, we have to stick with our day jobs, which we like. So, you know, yes. whatever. <laughs> Anywho, I'm really going to stop rambling now. <laughs> Someone needs to go to bed. Have a good upcoming week and the week after, and we will catch you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. <laughs>